0: Where do you go to get inspired? Claude Monet had only to step into his garden to find what he wanted to paint.
1: Instead of just organizing a bouquet or organizing a still life, he organized a whole garden that would have the colors that sang for him.
0: Coming up, an artist who helped restore the famous gardens at Giverny tells us about Monet's passion. Or walk a beach in Brittany to experience a dreamlike beauty after mountains of sea foam pile up on shore.
2: It becomes a very magical, surreal thing because, of course, the sunlight is blowing through it, and it's lit up like a crystal cavern.
0: We'll hear how life can take a turn for the wild when you turn an old farmhouse in France into your home. And three Americans who married Italians tell us how they adjusted to settling in in Italy.
3: It was expected that a three-course meal was going to be on the table every
0: day. Let's share the romance and the beauty in the travel-filled hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking at the places and the people we love today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll hear the stories of three American women whose European travels resulted in the ultimate souvenir, a husband and a new life in Italy. We'll also hear how an American family almost got in over their heads when they fell in love with a rugged little island off the coast of France and bought a house there. Don Wallace tells us how his neighbors helped his family restore more than just a building. 877-333-7425. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. Let's start with a look at the intimate gardens that Impressionist painter Claude Monet created around the end of the 19th century at his house in Giverny. Elizabeth Murray is a gardener and an artist from the Monterey Bay area in California. She volunteered nearly a year of her life to help restore the gardens in 1985. She's updated and re-released the beautiful photo-filled book she compiled to convey how Monet created his gardens as a work of art in themselves. It's also where you can experience his famous water lilies in person. Her book is called Monet's Passion, Ideas, Inspiration, and Insights from the Painter's Gardens. Elizabeth, thanks for being here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Anybody who loves art knows Impressionism, and when you say Impressionism, you think Claude Monet... Set up the garden. What is it with the great painter having his own garden to help inspire his art?
1: His garden was both a sanctuary for him and his family, and a place that became his biggest inspiration. And he lived there in Giverny, a little village, for 43 years. And he started to create this garden for his own pleasure and delight and then realized it had everything he needed to paint. He didn't have to travel outside of it any longer as he was aging and all these other political things and wars were happening. So here is a garden of great beauty that nourished him, inspired him, and he organized the colors and plants and reflections so that it was something he could be inspired to paint each day.
0: So he spent his last 43 years there. He died in 1926... Today, nearly 100 years after his death, we can go there and enjoy the gardening wizardry of this great painter (laughs) because he painted and he planted and it comes together. Now, you visited back in 1984 reading your book. It's just an amazing story. Tell us how you first met Gevernet and then why that changed your life.
1: Well, I've always been a painter and a gardener and when I went there, I literally got a lump in my throat. I had fallen in love. I thought... More than anything, I want to know this garden intimately. And the best way to know a garden is to work in it. So I had a French friend with me, and I didn't speak French, and she helped me meet one of the gardeners who said, oh, you must go and speak to Monsieur Vanderkamp and ask if you can work here. And I thought, you know what? I live in Carmel, California. I have a great house and nine people working for me. I was a professional gardener but I'm willing to give that up in order to work for free. And it has been something that has enriched my life. So wait a minute. About
0: 30 years ago, you were traveling around and you were visiting gardens all over Europe. You've seen a lot of great gardens. You're a professional gardener with your own staff. You went to Gébernais, two hours west of Paris, and you were so impacted by that that you went home, quit your job, and moved to France and
1: volunteered for nearly a year. Yes, that's right. And I didn't speak French.
0: dans les jardins de Giverny, de la maison de Claude <laughs> Monet. I'm not a gardener, but I go to these great gardens in Europe, and I love them. They just are delights. Mm-hmm. How was Giverny a step above all of those?
1: Well, it was a step into my heart. That was it. It wasn't that it was grander by any means, but I love Monet as an artist, and so this is like a living painting. And I felt, like many people who visit, the spirit of Monet. Hmm. So when you feel the spirit of someone you love and admire, and then you get to see some of the ideas and where he lived, you really feel his presence. Hmm. And that's really what I fell in love with. And so you have a great painter who knew light. His, whole, his biggest emphasis was painting light and hmm. all the shades of color So instead of just organizing a bouquet or organizing a still life, he organized a whole garden that would have the colors that sang for him with his kind of color sensitivity and rules of color.
0: Now this is interesting, Elizabeth, you're talking about light. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole rallying cry of the Impressionist movement was for the artists to get out of the studio and into the light. And they would set up their easels out in nature and then they would yes. grab the light. And, and these artists like Monet would famously paint the facade of a church at different times of day. And for them, it wasn't the same subject. It was a completely different subject because the light and the shadow would play on the physical object differently at different times of day. And this is sort of the essence of Impressionism, isn't it? It's capturing the light and the reflections and the shadows.
1: Exactly. The impression of that moment hmm. gave its name, Impressionism. It's one thing to have it on a building, which Monet did the incredible ones of the Cathedral in Rouen, but then you have it of living textural plants that are Mm. going to change with the light, and they have their own vibration. As an artist
0: and a gardener, Elizabeth, you could sit in Monet's garden, and would you appreciate the different times of day? Would you enjoy that dimension of it? So as a sightseer, we can go in the morning and we can go out for lunch and take a walk and come back in the afternoon... And artistically, it's a different garden.
1: Absolutely. And then it might rain. You might have pouring rain, bring an umbrella, Ah. and then the rain will break and you'll have gray clouds and everything will be all shiny and sparkly. Or you might be there for early dew or you might be there for a little frost. The seasons completely change the colors. It's
0: just, it's carbonating the whole experience by appreciating this extra dimension. I'm Rick Steves, and our guest, Elizabeth Murray, is an artist, photographer, and gardening expert. She helped with the restoration of Claude Monet's famous gardens at Cheverny after time and the Second World War had left them in ruins. She's published a book called Monet's Passion with photos, observations, and tips on the plants Monet used to convey a vocabulary of color in his gardens. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, Kristen's on the line in Delray Beach, Florida. Kristen, thanks for your call.
4: Nice to talk to you, Rick. I'm so excited to hear what Elizabeth is saying about Monet's Gardens because for me, two Mays ago when we went to Paris, my husband and I took the train to Giverny and loved it. It was the first time that we had gone. I'm a photographer, and I, it, it was splendid. We had a pretty rainy stay for most of our time in Paris, but the day opened up when we went to Giverny, Mm -hmm. and it was one of those days where the sun was not shining brightly, but it was light, it was perfect for Mm. photography, and I loved it, and what Elizabeth was saying about the different textures and the different colors for the different seasons was so true, because the lilies were not in bloom in May, but still, the way the banks of the pond were planted, there were wonderful reflections in the water. And there were there were areas that were all blues and purple flowers, and then there were areas that were all yellows and oranges. It was splendid. And the, the wisteria on the Japanese bridge, it was just a very exciting time.
0: And you need to be tuned in to those... Beyond the physical features, sort of dimension of what you're looking at, don't you? You need to be looking at the glimmer and the shadow and
4: absolutely, the, and the absolutely. Reductions. And um, it's nice their webpage lists the flowers that you can expect to have uh, blooming in the different seasons. I found that a wonderful help.
0: So, Elizabeth, you've been there over thirty years, many, many times. What is your recommendation to? enjoy the garden the most? Is there a season or a time of day or is it just the variety?
1: Well, I love May. May and June are incredible, although they tend to get a little more crowded. And I also love the late summer, early autumn, like September and the first couple of weeks of October, Mm -hmm. because the garden has gone wild and Mm -hmm. the whole scale and the color scheme of the garden is very different. It's more messy, but huge with dahlias and sunflowers and purple asters and the nasturtiums have covered the Mm. Grand Allee and the roses are covering. As the caller mentioned, it's the spring, you know, when you see the roses and wisteria and irises and then about June or July is when the water lilies start to open, and they're really lovely. Ah, It
0: sounds like there's many times you can go. Kristen, did you go to the Orangerie in Paris as a sort of a prep Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, yes. You know, that's what's so important is to remember that in Paris you've got the Orangerie. There's lots of great impressionists in Paris, but the Orangerie was designed by Monet to house his great, great collection of canvases, the water lilies, and all that comes right out of Gevernay. and I understand Elizabeth that the gift shop at Gevernay was actually his studio and you can imagine Monet That's there right. with his big canvases where they sell all the gifts and the posters today.
1: It's an incredible building like a huge, mm-hmm. huge barn with big skylights that he had transparent kind of special curtains on that he could adjust the light and those panels were so enormous. Each one is maybe 30 feet long, and mm. they all join together nice. to cover the walls in two curved rooms. It's an amazing experience. Oh, it is. It was so ahead of its time. And the experience is to walk inside the pond and look around you mm. and see the light changing. And that was his gift to Paris. He called it his bouquet to Paris.
0: And it's a shame to miss that when we visit. Now, Kristen, thanks for your call.
4: Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. Nice to
0: hear this. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Elizabeth Murray. Her book is Monet's Passion, and it's all about uh, the garden of Gévernay and the great painter who was also a great gardener. In your book, you wrote, we need to take time to introduce each generation to art and to nature. Why is that important, and how is your work at Gévernay part of that mission?
1: Well, I think it brings art and nature, nature through the garden together, And I think it's important because it ignites our imagination and creativity and our recommitment to nature and to beauty and renewal. And it connects us all. In so many
0: ways, if you love art and you go to Gévernay, you realize you love nature also. It's a beautiful coming together of two fundamental aspects of our lives here. Elizabeth Marie, thank you so much. And uh, congratulations on a beautiful book. Thank you so much. You can explore the artworks and musings of Elizabeth Murray at her website, elizabethmurray.com. Her most recent book is called Living Life in Full Bloom. Her exhibit on the language of flowers is on display through March 8th at the Monterey Conference Center. The house that Don Wallace and his wife bought in rural France needed a lot more than the gardens to be restored. He takes your calls at 877-333-RICK as we hear about raising a family out of the rubble in The French House. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Don Wallace and his wife decided to buy an old house on an island they visited off the coast of Brittany, little did they expect that it would turn into an adventure that would redefine their lives. He's written The French House, about the ruined maison they bought, and about how, over time, the local villagers helped them restore both the house and their life as a family. Don, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you, Rick. Now, you have had quite a story. W- were you inspired by a, a Year in Provence or Under the Tuscan Sun when you decided to get your fixer-upper 30-some years ago?
2: Well, I'm happy to say we actually got there before them. That's uh, right. That's 30 years ago. A Year that was, in Provence was them. 1991. Ha. It was my mother's inspiration after we bought the house. So you were before the trend,
0: but you were a little slower than them because it took you a long time to get it all put together.
2: The thing about those wonderful books, and they are very good, is those people never seem to lack for money. And in our case, we had to scrimp and save, and my wife and I, we had to go out and kind of drum up extra work we moonlighted in order to finish the house, and it did take a full seven years before we could spend the night under the roof.
0: So you got it livable over the course of seven years, visiting from the United States and scrimping and saving. You were running around in Europe with your wife looking for the place. What was it about belle Isle? And for people who don't know belle Isle, tiny, remote island 10 miles off the coast of Brittany in the Bay of Biscay on the far west of France. Britain is, is not even your classic French culture. It's Celtic culture. It's about the most rugged part of France I can imagine, and it's just in a stark way quite beautiful, but uh, lots of tiny villages sort of dominated by the wind and the sea and the birds. Describe Belle Isle to us and why it stole your heart.
2: Well, you know, it was a matter of luck. We were actually living in a cave in Santorini. My wife and I thought we were going to be writers abroad, and um, We didn't realize, because we were in our 20s, that you actually have to sort of have a publication record to send in things and have the New Yorker acclaim you and have books come out. So we ended up in a cave, literally a nice whitewashed cave in Santorini, but it was cold. And the time came to go to our next spot, and we contacted my wife's professor abroad, and she said, You guys sound like you're in pretty bad shape. You need to go have some R&R. And we thought this was Paris— And she said, you should go to my tiny island. And so we jumped from Santorini in the dead of winter to Belial in the dead of winter. And I think what drew us was simply the idea of going so far out that we would lose ourselves. And after we lost ourselves, maybe we'd find ourselves. Now, this island is tiny. It's got no cities. It's just got, like, uh, lots
0: of villages. You write that each village has a cow and each village has a mystery. What do you mean by that?
2: It really is a special and mysterious kind of place that it's only 10 miles long. And yet, we know people at one end of the island who never visit the other end. There are people who believe they're witches at that south end. And for ourselves, each village has a personality and in the European style, all the houses are grouped together, unlike an American farm where things are sort of separated. You know, that
0: is very good. And a lot of people don't, it's so simple, but a lot of people don't put their finger on that idea that you have a farm hamlet where a bunch of farmhouses are together and their land then is all around that area, but the, the community comes together in a little hamlet.
2: That's right. We share walls, which is something in an apartment building you would do, but our house actually shares walls. So does turnovers. that give you a
0: more fundamental communal spirit rather than the rugged individualism of a farm country in America?
2: In Belle you have a certain amount of cooperation, but also this is France and the rules... And the unwritten codes of a village go back as much as four or five hundred years. And we had to step very softly. We had to keep our heads down. And we were not really accepted for three or four years. Hmm. And what made the breakthrough was simply that they realized the house that we had bought belonged to a very esteemed woman, Jeanne. And they realized we were going to restore it in the style, the Breton style of Jeanne, that we weren't going to become the Americans with their solid gold bathtub.
0: Nice. That probably won you a place in their hearts. You write a beautiful metaphor about how the island breathes with the tides. Explain that.
2: Well, you know, it's an island that has many fjords that cut deep into it. And so, even though it it has quilted farmlands, beautiful lands that, in fact, supply a lot of the food that we eat there, you have the ocean breathing up into your valley, into your house. We're maybe 20 minutes by foot from the ocean. We get ocean fogs, we hear the waves. And when we hear the waves, uh, my wife is from Hawaii and she's a surfer, and we said, after about seven years, we said, we'd better bring a surfboard over here. So she hears the waves in the morning and she goes, oh, we better go down and go surfing.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don Wallace, and Don's book is called The French House, talking about his 30-year experience buying a fixer-upper on a remote island off the west coast of France, Belle-Ile, and uh, all he learned from becoming a temporary local there. Don, you talk, we were talking about The island breathes with the tides. You also talk about the bruises that come with a storm. What are the bruises that a storm can bring an island?
2: Belleville sits in the Bay of Biscay, which is one of the most treacherous pieces of water in the world. It also meets the Atlantic Ocean. And when the storms come in, these Force 10 storms, they just blow over the whole island. They can knock over a stand of trees. They can fill a large valley with spindrift taller than your head, mm-hmm. which is like walking into a, a giant bubble bath. So you have to really enjoy that weather. You know, of course, a lot of us really do love to stick our noses into a storm. So what is spindrift? Spindrift is spume. It's, is that the foam? It's the foam of the sea. The and it's, foam It's, of it's kind sea of blown storm. and quilted. And imagine it's six feet high. Six feet. Can you walk through it? Yeah, it becomes a very magical, surreal thing because the sunlight is blowing through it, and it's lit up like a crystal cavern. That
0: is reason enough right there to go to Belle-Île and wait for a storm.
2: Yes, and I will say that the French really do love the sublime natural experience. They've been coming out here since the 1880s not to build on it, not to develop it, but to um, really stick their noses into the wind. Hmm. And that's something you can really admire about France. Um, They did not turn this place into a tourist center like the south of France.
0: To stick their noses into the wind. I had a poetry teacher in high school that talked about eating the wind and the French stick their noses into the wind and one way or another when you're traveling, you need to get yourself in the wind and then actually enjoy it. We're talking with Don Wallace. His book is The French House. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Phyllis is calling us from Demotte in Indiana. Phyllis, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, thanks for taking my call. The question I have, is it still possible to buy fixer-upper houses without paying a fortune over there? I mean, Don, would you suggest someone doing that?
2: Well, you know, of course, I think it always comes down to the shape your dreams are in. And if you really want to do something, you should go ahead and explore it. On Belle Isle, it's a small island. And I think when we got into it, the last of the fixer-uppers were moving into the hands of the Parisians for the most part. You can find houses, though, to buy, and there are some that are tucked in and some apartments in the very small town, Le Palais. So it is it is possible, and people do it. The development is regulated, which makes it tougher. The prices would be, I think, somewhere around three hundred to 500,000 euros. So you can see it's not a cheap experience. But on the other hand, all up in Brittany, heading north, are other little valleys and towns and if they're on the mainland, they still feel like an island because they're very, very rugged. And I would say you could find a very nice thing there.
0: There are villages, Phyllis, uh, all over France that are in desperate need of inhabitants as people are drawn to the big cities for, you know, the razzle-dazzle and the employment. I think they're called SOS towns, and uh, the government is actually subsidizing the one little uh, shop or the, the post office or the the one little restaurant to keep it some sort of commerce there. And uh, I would imagine there's houses there that could be had for a song. Do you know anything about those, Don?
2: You're absolutely right about the depopulation of the provinces, which I think started in World War I with the tremendous slaughter of the wars. You can go into the mid um, the Midi section, mm-hmm. and I understand there are whole villages that are up there. And you can buy yourself a large um, chateau.
0: It's just not going to be on a beautiful island or, or in the Dordogne River Valley or something like that. But if you can go for it's the list. It's going
2: to be a little... I have a feeling the wind blows and it gets cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done some hiking all around France, and um, it's a really challenging... Mm-hmm. Environment. I think that's why the French are so tough and why they're such great outdoorsmen in their own right. Yeah,
0: Phyllis, thanks for your call. Thank, Thank you, you, Phyllis. Don, you've been at this for so long now. You've seen changes happening, and it was seven years before you could even, you know, actually get the house uh, weatherproof and so on. When you buy something like this, over the years, the villagers age, the young people move out, developers come in, roads are built. Uh, I think you had to deal with an offshore oil spill. And expats like you move in and change the character. What have you seen that's been a disappointment in the last couple of decades over the idyllic place that you bought, and and what are your thoughts about that?
2: I suppose it always comes down to more people. I mean, if you're in a beautiful place, whether it's Hawaii or Southern California or Belial, the more people who come, the more they put wear on the land and on the, kind of on the relationship, so people get frayed. And I would say Belial has not had that happen.
0: Mm Mm-hmm
2: for some unique reasons. And one is that a lot of people bicycle. There aren't fleets of rental cars if you arrive on the ferry boat. It has an unbelievably softening effect on tourism. But I would say the disappointment that we see is that as people try to squeeze another house into the allotted land, and it's well-regulated, they make these compromises and they get pretty kitschy. It's still a Breton house, but it looks like a sort of miniature squeezed Breton house. And then they try and rent them out and extort the maximum rent to people. It sort of creates a tourism vicious syndrome of the more you love it, the more you wear it down. But again, with Eel, strong regulation, federal regulation has kept it from being eroded.
0: Well, to give you an idea of the the humble economy in the island, you wrote beautifully about the mobile markets. Apparently, some towns are so small they don't even have a fixed market. But uh, once a week, a truck will come in with groceries. Uh, Tell me how that works.
2: I think there are only 5 towns that have markets. There are two supermarkets, which a French supermarket by the way is sort of a place of delicacies. But the mobile truck comes out every Thursday in our village uh-huh. and you can place advance orders. You can say I usually have 3 uh, loaves of bread and uh, I'd like some charcuterie and bring me one of those billil goat cheeses, the chevre. Mm. And oh yeah, I'd like some pork chops and some local lamb chops. Oh, that's good. So it's like the, the milkman
0: in our youths when we remembered the milkman knows yeah. that we want four bottles of this and two bottles of that. So this is just general groceries that come in every Thursday, and he'll know how much bread that Don and his family want.
2: Yeah, it's that kind of environment for the older people. I could see myself growing old in Bill ill because they really have a communal spirit, and in a village, mm-hmm. people take care of each other. Very and nice. then here comes your van with your food. <laughs>
0: Nicole's on the phone in Dallas, Texas. Nicole, thanks for your call.
5: Hi there. I've never been to Belle Isle, but I would like to go because it's part of my family history. I am a Cajun, and um, my family, the LeBlancs, is actually the biggest Acadian family and part of the odyssey of our family after the expulsion in 1755, um, the British put all the Acadians on boats and sent them to the American colonies. Mine were, had the misfortune of being on the boat to Virginia and were not allowed to get off the boat. So then they were shipped back to England, to Liverpool, and held, and I'm not quite sure if they were in a prison or an Acadian ghetto in Liverpool, but with the Treaty of Paris at the end of the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, they went to Belle e on Uh, France got it back from Britain, and they sent these Acadians over to settle it. And they were all farmers and fur trappers, and apparently um, they weren't too crazy about it. They stayed there for not even 10 years before they went back to Poitou and then on to Louisiana. And in pictures, it doesn't really look like a place where there would be a lot of farming and fur trapping. So I was wondering about those types of things on the island.
0: Your family is Acadian? What does that
5: mean? Acadians were um, French settlers that were recruited in the early 17th century to go and settle French territory in Nova Scotia.
0: So, Don, do you know about this Acadian connection with oh, Belial?
2: This is a very wonderful summary that you just gave, and indeed it's it's really a very large part of Belial's culture. One of the things that is interesting is that when the 78 Acadian families arrived in the Grand Derangement, as it was called, The government of France didn't really want them on the mainland because they felt the Acadians had not shown sufficient enthusiasm for fighting the English during the war. So what they did was they installed them in starter farms all over the island where there weren't farmland. They built a house in a certain style, and it's the Breton style that what we now think of as the Belle Isle style. The defining characteristic is there's no rear window, so that if the English are attacking, you can't escape. Each of these Acadian families was given a musket and was told if the English came, you have to fight until you get slaughtered. That's just one of the little details of mm. the um, the Acadian thing there. The other thing is Cajun culture and Belial culture are very similar. They have the same music. They have the um, bagpipe played with a goat sack. Mm. They have the uh, accordion and they do the, the two-step at their dances. Mm. You can go to Louisiana, which I have, and you can go to a Fesnaz on Belle Isle, and you can hear sort of that Rage and Cajun music. And they, they have, of course, the same taste in crepes and galettes and sausages. It's really quite a contribution to the culture it's there. It's
0: important for people to recognize the widespreadness and the deep roots of Celtic culture in Europe. And a lot of these societies didn't get their own country, but you've got uh, Galicia in northwest Spain, which is related to Ireland, and, of course, you've got Cornwall in the southwest of England, which is Celtic. And you've got Brittany on the west of France and, and your home island, Belle Ile, all with the same kind of music and a lot of the same taste in food and, and uh, dance and, and so on. Nicole, it sounds like you need to go to Belle Ile.
5: I do. It's one of the few places in my family history that I have not visited. And I had a Cajun band play at my wedding, so you know I'm going right. to be dancing when I get there.
0: Well, I've been there and it's a beautiful island. It's a little bit of a trek to get out there, but once you get there, you're very glad you went. So I look forward to it. Thanks for the call, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Don Wallace. His book is The French House, which talks about his experience buying a fixer-upper on the very west tip of France on a little island. And Don, you wrote in your book that you thought you were restoring a ruined farmhouse, but ended up restoring your family. Boy, that's quite a weighty statement. Uh, Let's just finish by having you explain to us how this really had an impact on your family as well as your travel dreams.
2: Well, when we bought it, we were working entry-level jobs, and my wife and I, we didn't really think through the uh, implication. Then she got pregnant right after we bought it. And what this did was it put us in the hole financially, made us really think about where we were going with our lives. We were 32. We were writers. We were, you know, romantic, and we didn't really think about 401ks, about retirement, about even buying a house. So with Belial, we had to begin working, working overtime, moonlighting, getting better at what we were doing. And we had to grow up a little. And it was at the same time we were growing up with this romantic anchor in our lives, Belial. And that really fed us in our souls. And so we were able to kind of hang on to our dreams. And we've both stayed being writers. We both have written uh, fiction and nonfiction and published books. And our son, he got to grow up living a wild wildlife on an island off the coast of Brittany and when he came back to New York City and went to his little public school he looked like a savage and in some way that pleases me because Mindy and I both uh, we sort of have a wild heart and this island allowed us to sort of construct a full life around the wildness that's inside of us.
0: Wow. I don't know, I just love the idea of you guys hanging out in a cave in Santorini, ending up in a fixer-upper on the west coast of France and raising a child who is like a wild creature and that makes you (laughs) feel swell with pride. Uh, You know, this is an example of how you can turn your travel dreams into a life-changing experience. And you've written this book with a, a real passion for sharing what happened inside of you and your family as well as how you fixed up this house. And it's just a fascinating book. Don Wallace, thanks so much for joining us, and and best wishes as you learn more from the wisdom of villagers on belle Isle. Thank you, Rick. There's more about the French house on Don's website. That's don-wallace.com. Next, Italians elevated the whole concept of romantic. But what's it like to marry an Italian? We'll hear how three American women adjusted to the demands of living in Italy after the honeymoon. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use. You learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Romance across international borders always promises an interesting story. We've got three of them right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by three American-born women who each developed a fondness for the style and culture of Italy, fell in love with Italian men, and settled into a new life there. Karen Kibby grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, and just like in a movie, her Roman holiday fantasy came true. She now lives with her husband in Tuscany. Anne Long is originally from Chicago, but found the beauty of Sorrento impossible to leave. She's made it her home now for more than 30 years. And Lisa Anderson grew up in the Seattle area and is now raising her family in a village near Lake Como in the north of Italy. Karen and Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Lisa, how did your adventure start in Italy?
6: I went to Italy to teach English thinking I was going to have a short-term educational experience learning to speak the language, and instead I met my husband. He was one of my students. He was an adult student. I need to add that because I did not teach children, <laughs> private school. He very wanted good to. clarification, thank you. <laughs> the first time we went out, we had a dictionary between us on the table, which was very funny. Actually, before he even asked me out, he asked me if it would be correct for him to ask me out. It was funny. He came to class one day. He'd been coming every other week for about six or seven months. I'd never looked twice at the man. I mean, wasn't my type. I wasn't looking for anything. And he said, well, would it be okay or appropriate if I were to invite you to dinner? And then he didn't invite me to dinner. He had to wait. I had to wait two <laughs> weeks was just for the invitation. With his <laughs> I'm like, okay, did I miss something here? Are you <laughs> getting ready to invite somebody else out? Anyway, two weeks later, he actually invited
0: me to dinner. And how many years ago was that? That was in 1997. Long time ago. And how's his English now? It's pretty darn good. I bet it's good. Yeah. All right, Anne Long. Tell us about your story.
3: Well, I went over to Italy as a tourist several times, and then I decided I wanted to go for six months to learn the language, and ended up staying. I've been 34 years there, and I was married for 28 years. I'm a widow now. But I found an Italian who was taller than me in southern Italy, and I couldn't (laughs) let the opportunity pass.
0: And where was that, and what was his name?
3: Sorrento. Sorrento. I always stayed in Sorrento, and uh, my husband was Luigi. Luigi, perfect. (laughs)
0: Luigi, tower than you, Sorrento. What's not to like about that? And Karen Kibbe?
3: I
7: actually came to Italy in 1999, and I fell in love with the country first and was already tour guiding when I met my husband in Rome. Um, He's from Tuscany. His name is Fabrizio. And we met at a mutual friend's birthday party. And I concocted a story, because he works in a bank, about how I was interested in buying property in Italy. And so after two weeks of messages back and forth about how to get property in Italy, I finally asked him out for a beer. And he picked me up on a scooter, because his car had been stolen. And he thought this was very inappropriate to pick a woman up on a scooter That's something you do when you're a teenager. But for me, it was very Roman holiday to go whipping around Rome and out to a pizzeria on the back of a motor scooter, and that was it for me. And we moved to Tuscany to be closer to his family.
0: Fabrizio. Fabrizio. You know, if I was uh, happened to be a woman in Italy looking for <laughs> men, I'll tell you the names are just, to me, sexy. Alessandro, Fabrizio, <laughs> even Luigi. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> see, that's right. Lisa, yeah. what is your husband's name? Mauro. Mauro. There's another good one. Now, Lisa, you live in... Pimonte. Pimonte, up in the north. Mm-hmm. And Karen, you live... In Tuscany on the coast. In Tuscany on the coast. Livorno is there? Livorno. That right? Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. You all eventually got married. Were there any surprises after you were committed to each other and settled down was there anything that okay now the honeymoon's over this is the way it's going to be
3: with me it had to do with cooking because i never professed to be a good cook mm-hmm. and yet it was expected that a three course meal was going to be on the table every day traditional roles traditional roles mm-hmm. that you had to do it and if not somebody would shrivel up and die so we had to do th- the cooking and, and that's set? the woman's place. <laughs> that's right. All that's right. right.
6: I was. I didn't have to do a three course meal every day, but I was expected to do lunch and dinner, a proper meal, hot meal,
3: mm-hmm.
6: a wholesome meal. I could not pull something out of the freezer or pop it out of a can. No TV no. dinners, No
0: microwaving. No, in no. fact, you had probably a built in mother in law to teach you if you needed.
6: I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Actually, us about we that. ended up with a really nice exchange going after a while because. When I first moved in with my husband, we were thinking we were going to get our own apartment, but we couldn't actually find a place to live immediately. And they had an apartment next door to theirs where they wanted us to live. And I was thinking, we'll live here while we look for something else. No. And we didn't have anything in the apartment because when you move into a place in Italy, unless you're renting a furnished apartment, it's empty. I mean, literally walls, you don't have closets, you have nothing. So we we didn't have a kitchen, and so we had to eat with my mother-in-law every day. I gained 10 pounds before I learned to say no.
0: Wow. She was a great cook. Now, this is an interesting issue. When you do marry an Italian guy, you're also kind of... Uh, you're marrying their
7: family. There's no word for privacy in Italian. hmm And so mother-in-laws do feel that you don't necessarily have your private space, and that mm-hmm. can be very interesting. They can walk in at <sighs> any time.
0: Is that right? So they just... You're part of the family, and, you know, we're all together here, and, and there is that intimacy that's more very. intimate than you might want.
7: Well, my mother-in-law on a few occasions, has actually come to my house when I'm on tour, and wanting to be very nice, it comes from a very good place in her heart, she will clean the house from top to bottom, and she will take all of my clothes out of my drawers and my closets and wash them, dry them, iron them, dry clean them, whatever they need, and (laughs) then put them all back in a very nice fashion. Whoa. Which is kind of of invasive. Kind of invasive. (laughs) And it took me a while to realize she was doing it from a good place in her heart, not as a critique of me and how I keep my closets.
0: Have any of you had experience raising kids with an Italian mother-in-law yes. kind of helping out? Lisa, yes. tell me about well, that. Well I mean
6: it's just expected that they are the babysitters if you need right. childcare. And you know, in hindsight I don't have my in-laws anymore. But my mother in law was an amazing help mm-hmm. in terms of childcare. But at the same time, you know, when she when I needed childcare and she wasn't available, I decided that my child should get used to going to a daycare. So it wasn't a complete shock to the system and my mother in law was extremely offended by that. And the daycare in our particular town they're called baby parking, which I so think is so. Why would you name. go to a
0: daycare when you got the mother in law right there? Is there something wrong with me?
6: Exactly. Oh my god. And then, and then so she would, if she walked into town because our town is small, and she'd walk past the daycare and she says, Why didn't you tell me Filippo was at baby parking <laughs> today? I walked by the window and he started crying.
0: Oh, oh, baby parking,
6: baby parking, isn't <laughs> that a great name?
0: Is that what it's called? Baby the, the daycare center, yeah, just park your baby here, park your baby. Anne Long, Lisa Anderson, and Karen Kibbe are joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for an inside look at the surprises and rewards of marrying into Italy. Is there any sort of general comment you can make comparing American men and and how they treat their women and Italian men and how they treat their women? Anne?
3: Well, American men... Many of them have grown up with working mothers, so they're used to the fact that the wife is outside of the house and that the, you share jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one night if you cook, I wash the dishes. The next night it's the opposite. The Italians <laughs> don't that do back that.
0: back and forth. You're not going to negotiate <laughs> this one away.
3: <laughs> no. And Karen Kibbe,
0: it sounds like you, uh, you sort of initiated things. You asked your man out first. I did. Was that kosher? Does that happen he a lot didn't in didn't Mind.
7: Um, I don't know that it happens very often. So that would
0: be the uh, that would be the exception.
7: I think it would be the exception mm-hmm. for the most part.
0: Is that a cultural difference at all?
7: I don't know. But my husband dresses better than any American
3: man I know. Right.
0: They spend well, that, more time in the bathroom. That they is interesting. More, he
7: spends more time in the bathroom <laughs> than I do. <laughs>
0: So it's probably fair to say that in America, the guys will be hanging out wondering what's taken so long, why is the woman in the, rest, in the bathroom getting all fixed up, right. and in the Italy, opposite. it's almost flip-flop. That's mm-hmm. right.
3: And they have as many products in their, uh, the medicine cabinet for their beauty care the, as we do. <laughs> Lisa
0: Anderson, any thoughts on that?
6: My husband's pretty nontraditional from that point mm, of same view. Same like with mine. You know, he helps with housework. But mm-hmm. I have had friends who have said, wow, your husband's amazing, there is no way my husband would ever let me do what you do. Same. And I say, let me do, my husband would not be my husband if he didn't let me do
3: my <laughs> job.
0: <laughs> so this must be a little bit of a oddity for your husbands to take you out in their Italian circles.
3: Well, I was very lucky, though, with my husband because being from the South, some of his friends would say, how do you let your wife... Travel as a tour manager. Just out, that notion. Yeah, how would you outside, let your wife? Right, two weeks away. away who from knows you. what she's doing those two weeks? And let, let her. Right,
6: like let, give permission. Word,
0: give permission, and she's like Anne was saying. You don't know what she's doing every night. That's right. It's probably
3: an indicating that. You should not be comfortable letting them out for two Well, duties. the trust factor uh, the, is a very important thing in any marriage. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. But, but how does it work in
0: Italy? I mean, in, in France, it's kind of understood. A lot of men will have a mistress. Uh, is that acceptable in Italy? Or have you guys said, I'm an American, and, and that's just not going to go? Or is that also the same standard in Italy? Lisa, Karen, any ideas on that? Whether it's acceptable it's not going to have well, a, it's not, it, it would, not go, go, it would <laughs> not go well
6: with me either. But in
0: Italian culture I, in general, is this, is this commonplace?
6: You know, literally, Italian divorce is hard to get if you need a divorce. So people will have an affair before they get divorced. And it's actually better than it once was. It used to be a seven-year separation before you could be legally divorced. Mm -hmm. Now it's a three-year separation before you can legally divorce.
0: So a lot of affairs are actually, these are dead marriages They're and dead marriages. people who can't have a divorce, and of course she's having an affair because this love is dead.
7: And Network. he is and she is. Or so, maybe it's also a little more spoken. I mean, I, I don't know that the rates are any higher than in the United States, but here it's a very much, you don't talk about it, and it people are looked very down upon if they've had an affair. Instead, over there, I think people realize that it happens. People are not considered horrible people because they've had an affair,
0: in part because it's so hard to get a divorce in this Catholic it, country of Italy.
7: Right. In, in part, yeah.
0: yeah. And
3: they don't have the financial means either, The sometimes the women, in order to get a divorce. So everybody does their own thing but lives under a communal roof.
0: And I think we should... This I don't want to have a downer here, but it's <laughs> easy to fall in love with Alessandro and Fabrizio. <laughs> it's it's harder remember, to
6: stay in love with them. <laughs> ten years later, That's he's, right.
0: he's uh, not quite the same shape and not quite the same sort of uh, attraction. And you've got kids, and you've got heavy traditions. You have it's much all more the- complicated.
7: But I want to dispel some myths too. I think that Italian, you know, not all Italian men are Don Giovanni's. that no, are not. out there hitting on women left and right. You know, lots of people assume that Italian men are very loose with their morals. Yeah, loose with their morals, and Players, that they're not yeah. dedicated to their families or the women in their lives.
0: This is travel with Rick Stees. We're talking about marrying into Italy and any surprises you may encounter. I would just like to finish with each of you. Just finish with one of the joys of your married life in Italy, you as an American who married into Italian culture. Anne Long?
3: I really got the appreciation for family. I I had my in-laws above my head. They lived above my head for the whole time. And it was just the closeness of having a support system there that they were very caring with each other. And although it seemed interfering, they were together.
0: Uh, Lisa Anderson.
6: I would agree with that, you know, that now that I don't have that support system, I realize what I had. And there were times where I just wanted to strangle my (laughs) mother-in-law because it felt so suffocating and invasive. But, you know, she had our best interests at heart.
0: And all in all, now that they're gone, you miss them.
6: I miss them. And I also appreciate, if I can add one more thing, the way they raised my husband and how dedicated he is to us, to his wife and his kids.
0: Beautiful. Karen Kibbe.
6: I'm going to slip food in here. I am incredibly appreciative
7: of my mother-in-law's cooking. (laughs) I am incredibly appreciative of my husband that sits and lingers, even if we're just eating a frozen pizza, and we sit in the kitchen and we talk every single night. And when we go to dinner together, even by ourselves, it is very likely to be a three-hour-long dinner. Mm -hmm. And I really have a great appreciation for the love of food that the Italians have and how integrated it is into our lives, our daily lives, and how much it means for our families all to be together and
6: eat.
0: That's a beautiful thing. The hearth is a very important, it's a sacred place in the Italian family. It
6: is, and we do also sit down every day.
0: Anne Long, Karen Kibbe, Lisa Anderson, thank you so much and best wishes. Thanks Thanks a lot, Rick.
6: (laughs) You remind me of my uh, Italian nephew who's studying to sing opera, and he yeah. always has to have his neck covered because oh, is that right? he's protecting his voice, and I'm sure you're protecting your
0: isn't voice. Isn't that right? interesting? Well, I've, I've just sort of innovated this, but this really helps me. It does <laughs> help it's
7: though, very it? Italian of you. Is that right? It, it is. helps. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have
7: a scarf in my purse. You've got <laughs> one I have, on, I'm sure. Can can she's have oh, good.
0: On well, you all are clearly attracted to Italian men, so I'll do my best. <laughs> 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 A few years ago, adventure cyclist Willie Weir shared a tale with us of a very romantic surprise that he and his then fiance enjoyed while on a down-and-dirty cycling trip around Hungary. I thought you'd enjoy another chance to hear what happened.
8: Well, actually, it doesn't start out too well, Rick. Uh, I had just asked my wife to marry me. I proposed to her in Hungary, in Budapest. She had joined me, and this was her first bicycle trip. So she had never traveled on a bicycle before, and she'd been regaled by all the stories that I had and whatever. And what I had forgotten is that there's a lot of times on the road where things are just boring and flat, but you don't tell those stories later. So we head off from Hungary, and we travel the first night, and she's been regaled by people inviting us in. And we get to the end of the day, and all there is is this swampy, mosquito-infested area off the side of the road where no place to stay. We set up our tents, and... You know, we give a half pint of blood to the mosquitoes and we get up the next day and I look at Kat and she gets on the bicycle seat and I see her eyes and they just balloon to the size of oranges. And I said, can you describe what you're feeling? And she said, if it hurt any worse, I'd throw up. Now, she was telling me what it feels like to be somebody on the first day of a bicycle trip. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm in trouble. I mean, things need to change fast. We get through the next day, another swamp, another horrible tent experience. And I'm thinking, I don't have many days left before the person I've just asked to marry me is going to head home. We head into this little town. It's a little tiny Hungarian town. And I am I am desperate. I am looking for something to change. are going to lose we, this Yes, woman. exactly. And I come up into the There's this church. And there's this sign posted on the door. And it says there's going to be an event that night. But it's in Hungarian. It's in Magyar. The 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 local language, so I have no idea. It could be a Boy Scout troop or whatever, but there's an event that night, and I say, "Cat, let's stay in town, and we're going to go to this event. Oh, and I'm just thinking, oh, please. So we stay, and the local priest says there's a place we can park our bicycles, you know, in the church, and we, we get there, and we get in the back pew there, and, and at 7 o'clock, something's going to happen, and the few pews start to fill up, and finally, in walks in all of these men, and they walk up to the front of the church, and it ends up being an award-winning Italian men's chorus. The conductor lifted his hand, and that little church echoed with the most beautiful sounds I've ever. Heard. I mean, just goosebumps everywhere. Wow, this is fabulous. So we ended up after the concert. We're walking through the town, just looking around, and we went by this little restaurant, and we looked in. There was this long table, and we looked in. It was the entire men's chorus, and they were having dinner. And the conductor looked out, and he, and he waved us in. And he said, you're the, you're the cyclist. And he was the one who spoke English. So we sat down to them, and the wine came out, and we, we had a dinner with this Italian men's chorus. And why I, I mentioned to this guy, I said, you know, by the way, I, I just asked you know, Kat here to marry me, and we're going to get married. And, and I said, oh, that's very delightful. And one by one, these men got up from the table, and they walked out. And the manager and the conductor was the last to leave with us. And we walked out and looked out. And here was the entire men's chorus, and they'd formed a gigantic, like, half-moon circle around. There's just one lamplight and a little bit of moonlight shining down on this little restaurant. And the manager looks at me and says, it's your fault. (laughs) He said, we Italians, we are romantics. And you just said that you asked this woman to marry you? We must now sing for you. And the man lifted his hand... And they serenaded us in this little village in Hungary. And there was that moment when I reached down and I grabbed Kat's hand. And with tears in our eyes, we looked at each other. And not only with love in our eyes, but that moment of, can you really truly believe that we're here? And it's one of those moments that gets you through the swamps. And it gets you through the bug bites and the late trains or whatever you are as a traveler. Because those are the gems that will keep you traveling for the rest of your life.
0: And your magic carpet was a bike?
8: Uh-huh. It always is.
0: And your bike partner is still Cat?
8: Mm-hmm. My, my wife's name is Cat, and my cat's name is Dieter. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day to you and Cat. <laughs> Thank you, Rick.
0: Willie Weir posts more of his travel tales and cycling adventures online at willyweir.com. You can share your own romantic travel stories with us, Look for our Traveler's Message Board in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
2: Travel with Rick
3: Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Woolner. Thanks to Hawaii Public Radio and KUSP Santa Cruz for studio help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's updated weekly in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Italy and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Italy's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Italian adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.